Uh, We are, of course, still in our series uh, looking at Daniel, how do we thrive in this modern-day Babylon. Today, we're going to try to tackle two chapters, Daniel 5 and 6, uh, so that we can actually finish the book by the end of February, and so we'll see how that goes. This is kind of the end of of the narrative portion of Daniel as we move into chapter 7, it gets a little different, and if you've read ahead, you know that Daniel begins to see some visions, there's some an apocalyptic uh, sort of uh, bent to the next few chapters. There's some connection we'll see even to the book of Revelation. And so that will be uh, a fun time for us to walk through that here in the next three weeks. But today, uh, we're going to be in Daniel 5 and 6. So let's pray and ask him to just bless our time. Father, we do ask that you, you bless this moment as we dig into your word that is so pivotal, so important that we take it in, not just on a Sunday morning, but that we we hear it every single day. But today, uh, as we hear from your word, would you just allow it to soak into our hearts that your Holy Spirit would move in us, that we might hear and understand. Help me to speak this with clarity so that we can fully understand what it is you're trying to, to teach us from these two chapters. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. October 11th, 2002 was an incredibly important day for me and my life. It was a a turning point, you could say, for my future. Because just weeks before that, I had asked a girl for her number in the basement of the missions building at Ozark Christian College. I had a folded up piece of uh, toilet, not toilet paper, paper towel, that would be gross, Uh, folded up piece of paper towel, that's all I had to write on because we didn't really have phones that worked that way very quickly. And so I wrote down the number and for the next few weeks, uh, we were talking on the phone and, and I eventually got the courage to ask her out on a date. Her mother thought that I was taking too long to ask for that date. She suggested that she move on. I forgave her for that. Um, we scheduled a date for Friday, October the 11th at the Del Rio Mexican restaurant on Range Line Road in Joplin, Missouri. And we had dinner together. Just a few businesses down from that was a miniature golf course. So we played a few rounds of that while just getting to know each other face to face. And after that, she suggested, hey, let's go to the falls that was just outside of town. And we sat in the back of my truck and talked for a few hours. We left room for Jesus, I promise. Uh, She was living in her own house with a roommate. I was still on campus, and when you go to a Christian college, you have a curfew. So I had to be back by 1 a.m., dropped her off at her house, and then went back to the dorm to then be interviewed by half the guys on my floor about how it went. And I knew that this budding relationship had potential to be something incredible, and nearly 22 years later, Abby and I still like to go sit by falls if we can find them, and we still like miniature golf, but there are these three boys that keep wanting to go with us everywhere that we go. But on, on the night of October 11th, 2002, and, and into the morning, really, of October 12th, I began to see the writing on the wall, that this might be the girl for me. Now, if we go back in time even further, a lot further, to 539 BC, most historians believe that on the night of October 11th and into the early morning of October 12th, God miraculously wrote something on the wall of King Belshazzar's palace. Unfortunately for him, it had nothing to do with a budding relationship or a love story, but it had to do with the demise of his kingdom. 
And Daniel 5 describes that story for us. It describes how a floating hand began to write words on the plaster wall during a party. And this story is where we get that phrase, read the writing on the wall. Now for Abby and I, October 11th was the beginning of an exciting journey. For Belshazzar and the Babylonians, it was the end of their reign. And so just outside of Babylon were were the Medes and the Persians, and those armies had gotten together, and they were about to attack. Babylon was a very well-fortified city, had very high walls. They were very intricate. They had these huge guard towers and strong gates. They thought this city was impenetrable. And to, to those outside, it did seem that way. But there was a weakness. The Euphrates River ran through Babylon from north to south, and they were able to divert the stream, and the Medo-Persian army was able to go in under the gates and attack the city and conquer Babylon. Now, even though Belshazzar and the people of Babylon knew, they knew the army was nearby, they knew it was right there within 50 miles or so, he still throws this party. Now, maybe he was so prideful that he assumed he was safe, Or maybe he was so scared he just wanted some sort of distraction from the impending doom. But either way, Belshazzar chose to do something during that party that was incredibly disgraceful to his grandfather's legacy, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And what we should take from this quick story of Belshazzar is to learn from the past so God can use you for his future. The party that the king throws is a big one. A thousand of nobles are there and and wine and dine themselves. And what was probably an inebriated state, Belshazzar makes a request. In Daniel 5, 2, he, he tells us what he demands. It says, while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. Now, for years, in religion classes in the secular universities across this nation, this chapter here was used to discredit the Bible's accuracy and reliability. They claimed, and every historian knew, that the last king of Babylon was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And they would claim that there was no historical proof for a man named Belshazzar. He never existed. And so there's your proof. The Bible is a bunch of myths. It can't be trusted. And then archaeologists found some important discoveries near the ancient city of Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And they found some cylinders and a piece of broken clay with the inscription on it describing how King Nebuchadnezzar, just before this event in Daniel 5, had journeyed out into the desert for a battle. And he left his son in charge, Belshazzar. Turns out the Bible is historically accurate, so take that. (laughs) This is why later on in Daniel 5, he will offer Daniel gifts and say, I'll make you third highest in the kingdom. Why third highest? You're the king. Because daddy's out battling still. So all he could offer was the third highest. I mention this because some people will tell you that the Bible uh, is discredited, that, that science or that history proves the Bible is wrong. You can defend your faith, and we should defend our faith. Now, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but we know for certain Belshazzar was a real man, real king, and he made a real big mistake. Taking the vessels from the temple was not good that King Nebuchadnezzar did 
but having a party with them and drinking from them is even worse. And to top things off, this feast that began as a party transitions to praise. And they're not worshiping the God who consecrated these vessels, but they are praising their pagan idols. In Daniel 5.4, it says, while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. If only Belshazzar had learned from the past, perhaps he could have been used for God's future. He knew the stories of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what the God of Israel had done, how he had moved, and yet he refused to learn from the past, and therefore he was doomed to repeat it. What happens that night at that party is truly the essence of sin. That you don't worship God as God, you worship something else. And then you take the things that he has set apart for his purposes and you use them for your own selfish desires. Essentially, they commandeered the gifts of God for their own glory. And church, if we're honest, we can be guilty of that sometimes too. In different ways, we, we sometimes take our talents. And rather than using them for the kingdom, we hoard them for ourselves. The parable of the talents speaks to that very issue. God has given you gifts. He has given you talents. He expects you to use those in service of the kingdom. We do the same thing with our resources sometimes, our money, our possessions. And God asks that you give the first fruits of what he has blessed you with. Jesus tells us to give to Caesar what is Caesar, but to God what is God's. This world, modern-day Babylon, has taken sex, this, this gift from God to be enjoyed within the covenant and the context of marriage between a man and a woman, and has completely trashed it, making it something it was never meant to be, something that has ruined lives over and over again. It belittles people, the things that they use it for. It devalues them. And you may read Daniel 5 and think, what's the big deal? I mean, they drank out of some gold cups and some silver cups. Why is that such a big deal? Because they were abusing sacred things. You are sacred to him. You know that, right? If you don't, you need to hear that. You are sacred to him. Church, we are the bride of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are sacred in his eyes. Our modern-day Babylon says, throw that junk out. Who cares? But if we don't learn from the past, he will not be able to use us for his future. If we don't learn from the valleys, we're never going to get out of them. Belshazzar, he didn't learn his lesson from the past. So God decides to shake things up. They're praising their idols, drinking their wine from those sacred cups. And all of a sudden, a hand appears. And it begins to write something on the wall. Belshazzar's face goes pale. And he's, he's scared to death. The text says that his knees began to knock together. And he calls all the enchanters, all the astrologers, all the wise men in the kingdom, please come here and tell me what this writing on the wall means. They can't understand it. So the queen says, why don't you call Daniel out of retirement and, and ask him to come? He's, he's pretty good at this. And at this point, Daniel's in his 80s. And perhaps he has uh, been put out to pasture, I, I don't know, but he's, maybe he's not working with the wise men anymore. He's, there's been some change in management over the last few years, but they summon Daniel. He shows up to help like he always does, and he, of course, tells them what the writing on the wall means. And after a, kind of a short history lesson from Daniel about how the Most High God rules and reigns over the kingdoms of the world, he says this in Daniel 5.22, you are his successor, O Belshazzar. 
And you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you breath, the very breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this handwriting, this hand, to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mine, mine, tikal and parson. This is what the words mean. Mine means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tikal means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The text will go on to say how that very night... October 11th into October 12th, Belshazzar was killed and Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom. Church, we've all been numbered and we've all been weighed and we've all been divided in a sense. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that by ourselves we don't measure up. We are deficient. We know that the scales are not going to tip in our direction all by ourselves. But Hebrews 9.27 tells us that just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, right? He's done that, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him, church? Have you placed your faith in the one who can tip the scales in your favor? Jesus didn't come to make you a better person. He came to actually take your place on those scales, to be weighed, to be divided, so that you would not have to face the condemnation of your sins. God places the righteousness of Christ on your side of the scales. You're no longer deficient, but completely whole in Christ, because of Christ. We have to never forget that like Belshazzar did. Instead, we learn from our past so that God gets to use us for his future. Now, as Darius the Mede takes over Babylon, Daniel once again finds himself with a new king and finds himself useful. Daniel 6.3 says that Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Now, I mentioned that Daniel was in his 80s. And it's just a good reminder that old people can do awesome things. Can, can I get an amen from those who think they're old? <laughs> My son thinks I'm old, so I guess I'm in the category. But, but it is so true. You don't retire from the kingdom. You just find a different way to be used. Daniel 6, one of the most well-known passages, probably second only to David and Goliath, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And the beginning of this chapter shows us that who you are when no one is looking matters. When the new king chose Daniel for this high administrative position, the other administrators, for whatever reason, they didn't like Daniel. They didn't they didn't like what he was doing or, or for whatever reason, they just, they're not a fan of Daniel. And so they start digging to try and find some fault in Daniel. Did he handle all of the governmental affairs appropriately? 
this being an election year, 2024, it won't be long, it's already kind of started, where we will see ads over and over again on everything, no matter social media, regular TV, and it will continuously tear down the integrity of anyone running for office. Isn't it wonderful to have to listen to that and, and to know that all of these people have integrity issues or they think they do? Well, as these men are trying to dig up dirt on Daniel, we read this in Daniel 6, 4. They couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Who you are when no one is looking matters. Daniel had served in some position of leadership for a minimum of four decades, probably more than that. Your identity in Christ means nothing if you don't have the integrity to remain who you are when no one is looking. And church, we sometimes fall into this cycle where we do what's appropriate in public and then whatever we want to in private. And so we listen to a sermon, we tithe, we participate in Bible study during the week, we, we do everything on the outside that a person is supposed to do who is in Christ, but then publicly, or privately I should say, we... We watch ungodly things. We gossip about one another. Or we purchase things that we think are going to make us happy, but they really don't. And we convince ourselves that we're okay because what we're doing in public is, is fine, but it's what, in pri what you do in private that truly matters. The lack of integrity among Christians is hurting our witness. I, I, I have to tell you that. The number one reason statistically that people do not engage in church, they say it's because of hypocrisy that we are just a bunch of hypocrites. And we've all heard the saying or the joke, well, I don't want to come to church because it's just a bunch of hypocrites. And we say, yeah, you're right, we are just a bunch of hypocrites, but there's always room for one more. Uh. Like, I, I, I get that, and I know there's truth to that. Why are we inviting the sin of hypocrisy into the church? It's an unwelcomed guest. It should be. It needs to be. We're always working towards it. We're, never, we're not going to be perfect but always working towards that. Sin should be an unwelcome guest. We want people to be removed from that, continue to get past that, and to serve in the kingdom. But too often we justify our sins because, well, they're done in private. Your identity in Christ means nothing if you don't have the integrity to remain who you are when no one is looking. And Daniel 6, integrity is the main issue. The only problem for these administrators is that Daniel doesn't have a flaw or a hole in his integrity. He's beyond corruption. He's handled himself both privately and publicly in complete blamelessness. But envy's taken over the minds and hearts of these men, so they're looking for a weakness. And they find a weakness in Daniel through his love and trust in God. And they knew that. So in Daniel 6, 5, it says they concluded our only chance of finding grounds of accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. May that be true of us. May the only way that people find a weakness in, in us is through our love and our trust in God and in his word. May our only weakness not be the, the sin that we commit in private, but our love and trust and identity, identity that is firmly rooted in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. These men take the weakness of Daniel. They begin to scheme up a way to kill him. So they approach King Darius, and they kind of trick him uh, into writing this law. 
A pointless law, but it's a law nonetheless. Here's their suggested law, Daniel 6, 7. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. Now, we don't know if Darius had some sort of lapse in judgment here, or he just thought it sounded nice to be prayed to for a month, but he somehow forgot about Daniel. He forgot his commitment to his God, so he signs the decree. The text doesn't tell us how Daniel reacted to that, but I can imagine he had to wrestle with it. This new decree has put him at odds with Babylon. It has put him at odds with who he is to his very core. And this is not unlike what we face in our modern day Babylon. When a new law is passed or an executive order is made that we don't like, not just in a political sense, but because we cannot hold to it because of our faith. We have to decide who are we going to be when people are looking and when no one is looking. Now, we don't know exactly how Daniel felt, but we do know how he reacts. When he is unsure of what to do, he prays. I suggest we all do that. The problem for him is that's exactly what he was not supposed to do. So those administrators knew that, and they're watching his house. They see him pray in verse 11, and then as soon as they get their evidence, they run to the king and in Daniel 6.13, they say, that man Daniel, one of, his capt- one of the captives of Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. And the king probably hit his forehead because what were you thinking? You knew, you knew he would do this. And he knew what this meant. He knew he was going to have to throw Daniel in the lion's den. And he spends the whole day trying to figure out how to not get him in there. Like, how do I get him out of the den? And, and, and all day, and it's not until late in the evening, the text says, that he finally has to do what the law says. And so in Daniel six sixteen, the king says to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Words are important. How you use your words are important. It matters. If you're married to someone whose love language is is words of encouragement, you know words matter. King Darius uses a word that I think carries some important weight because he doesn't just say, may your God whom you serve rescue you. He says, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. It was Daniel's faithfulness that got him into this mess. And King Darius is hoping that his faithfulness will somehow get him out of it too. He hopes by some miracle, Daniel's God will honor that integrity and rescue him from the lion's den. Church, you need to understand that your number one evangelistic tool is your integrity. If you don't have that, you have a very slim chance of bringing anyone to Christ. Because why would they listen to us? Why would they choose to follow Jesus if if his own followers don't have that integrity? And some of you are thinking, yeah, but I've got a past. I've got a past that's too ugly. It's filled with a lack of integrity. And so how can I really make a difference for the kingdom now? You're worried that someone might bring up what you've done previously and those failures and point to those and say, look, look what you've done. Church, we all have a past. And God has prepared our future. And we have to leave the past behind. Now, you can make amends for things in the past if possible, but you need to put the past behind you so the future that God has for you can be your focus. Concentrate on the blessings you have right now. 
Charles Dickens once wrote this, reflect upon your present blessings of which every man has many, not on your past misfortunes of which all men have some. I know some of you have a troubled past. Whatever that looks like, it might have been a a very difficult childhood. Maybe you've been in an abusive relationship, whether that's physically or relationally or mentally. Maybe there's been a financial collapse in your life and you may think because of your integrity that because of that your integrity is just shot. But I'm here to tell you that God can redeem your life. He can redeem your past. Isaiah 43, 18 says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Church, we've got to learn to let the past go. And begin to build or rebuild the integrity that we should have because that is such an important part of helping people say yes to God. There's an old Peanuts cartoon that really speaks profoundly to this issue of of integrity and moving beyond our past. You have Lucy walking up to Charlie Brown, tossing him the ball, and she says, Sorry, I missed that easy fly ball, manager. I thought I had it, but suddenly I remembered all the others I've missed. Past got in my eyes. Well, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty good statement. Has the past ever gotten in your eyes? And you dwell on that instead of seeing the future that God has for you? If the past gets in your eyes, please focus on him and allow him to rebuild your integrity. And if you're worried, like, I don't know how I can do that. Can I introduce you to a guy named Paul? who had an incredibly tumultuous past, persecuted Christians, and then becomes a follower of Christ. And if anyone ever had a past to dwell on, it was him. And I think he had to work on it. I don't think it was easy for him. But he became a vital part of the early church. And in Philippians 3.13, he writes this, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past. And for him, that meant a lot. But forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Your number one evangelistic tool is your integrity. Some of you need to rebuild that starting today. Some of you need to, to just continue to protect it like Daniel did, even if you end up in the lion's den. Now, King Darius has a pretty rough night little sleep. He's worried about Daniel. Historians believe that the lion's den was kind of this large pit and maybe had a a movable wall right down the middle that you could pull up and allow the lions to move from one side to the other. Throw food on one side, put the wall down, you could clean up the other side. Uh, When the ancients thought of the most gruesome way to torture or kill someone, they thought of cats. That makes sense to me. Uh, I'm just saying... Just saying, you should never trust a cat any further than you can throw it, okay? I'm, I'm just, it's a joke. I'm just kidding. If you like cats, that's fine, sort of. Um, Darius had a rough night. Daniel, not so much. Not so much. Darius gets up early the next morning, uh, very early. He's anxious to figure out what happened to Daniel. He calls out to him with a similar phrase as when he threw him in there. In Daniel 6.20, Darius says, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel's reputation has gone far beyond the ability to interpret dreams. 
It's gone far beyond the ability to read writing on the wall. His, in, his integrity, his reputation is centered in his identity. It's solidified by his integrity, which is completely rooted in God. And not just in public, but in private as well. So Daniel responds, Daniel 6.21, by saying, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I've been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The last important lesson we need to learn from Daniel 5 and 6 is that consistency in your prayer closet will produce courage in the lion's den. So many of us have been through something that we could say it's kind of like this, the fiery furnace, it's a lion's den. We're, we're not promised that God's going to keep the lion's mouths shut, but circumstances cannot dictate our integrity. Who you belong to shapes who you are. And if you belong to Christ, then you're a follower of his, and that means your actions must always be consistent, whether in private or in public, whether in the prayer closet or in the lion's den. Our actions, our attitudes remain consistent with who we belong to. Daniel 6.23, it says, The king was overjoyed. He ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Now, Daniel didn't just all of a sudden have the courage to face the lion's den in this moment. His courage came from years and years of small, faithful acts of obedience, patterns of integrity that were tested over and over again. His courage came from those countless hours spent in prayer. Church, if you wait until the moment of trial to figure out whether or not you're going to follow the Lord, I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, it's not going to happen. When it comes to sexual temptation, my mentor used to say this, if you wait until the moment of temptation to decide if you'll remain sexually pure, you'll always make the wrong decision. Decide now. Walk with the Lord now. Pray now. So that when that hour of temptation comes, he's already given you the resources to escape from it. Colossians 4, 2 speaks to this value of spending time in prayer says this, to devote yourselves to prayer. Paul's writing this, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too, Paul says, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. This is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. And then he encourages them, live wisely among those who are not believers. What does that mean? It means have integrity. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. That time of prayer produces courage. It helps us maintain our integrity so that we have the right answer for whatever the question might be. Sometimes, especially in these, these first few chapters of Daniel, we turn Daniel into this amazing hero that we, we say, dare to be a Daniel. And to a degree, there's nothing wrong with that. There are certainly things in the life of Daniel that we should emulate, but that's not the main point of the story. In fact, the entire Old Testament is not written so that we will bow down to heroes or follow heroes. The Old Testament is written so that we would look forward to a Savior, so that we'd be able to adore Him when He shows up. When you see Daniel's story, when you see Abraham's story, or David's, or, or Ruth's, or Esther's, I want you to see Jesus. See the parallels between the two. And there are many in the life of Daniel and in the life of so many Old Testament characters. But no, Jesus' story is, is always greater. His story is always more important because these stories were recorded to point to his greater story of grace. 
They were written so that we would see the cross. And we do ourselves a disservice when we reduce the story of Daniel and the lion's den to a kid's story about being brave. Lions are vicious creatures. There's a story about a park ranger in the, a national park in South Africa who actually survived a lion attack. Almost nobody does that. He's, he was riding a horse. He didn't know he was being stalked by a couple of lions. And suddenly he said one of the lions lunged at him from the tall grass, barely missing him, but knocking over the horse. The first lion went after the horse. He then said that there was this deafening roar from right behind him as the second lion pounced on him. He remembered some of his training and he went limp trying to make the lion believe that he was dead so he wouldn't keep attacking. And, and luckily, he said, the lion didn't grab him by the neck. He kind of grabbed him by the shoulder, crushed his shoulder, but he wasn't dead. So instead, he, he began to take him back towards his lair. He said, my face was shoved into his mane. The smell was awful. The lion purred the whole way there. He assumed in anticipation of the meal. Cats are evil, okay? <laughs> There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. The man said the whole time he was trying to, to figure out what to do next. And he remembered he had strapped his hunting knife to his right leg. He assumed that in the, the mix of everything, he probably lost it. And, but he reached down slowly to the sheath. And to his indescribable joy, the knife was still there. He said, I secured it wondering where best to stab the lion. I decided to aim my knife for his heart. I moved slowly and silently and I struck him twice in quick succession. The lion instantly dropped me and let out a furious roar and I struck him again, this time upwards into his throat, which severed his jugular and killed him. Now, I didn't share that to like make your stomach turn or anything. I, I want you to feel just an ounce of the horror of what it would be like to be in the lion's den. It's not a kid's story. This is a fearful story story and I want you to feel that because this is actually to a degree a picture of the cross so if you go read Psalm 22 you will find in that Psalm verse 13 it will say like lions they open their jaws against me roaring and tearing into their prey that's verse 13 you get to verse 16 and it will describe how hands and feet are pierced it's a prophecy about what would happen to Christ. Now, Daniel's innocent. We know that. Jesus is far more innocent, innocent than Daniel will ever be. And there was no angel that showed up for Jesus to shut the mouths of his lions. Sally Lloyd-Jones, in one of her books, she says this, Jesus was left in the blackness utterly alone and abandoned by God, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserved. God did not shut the mouths of Jesus' lions like he did Daniel's. He let them tear him apart. His body was left entombed in the icy grip of death for three days before the angel finally came to roll away his stone. And when Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came out alone. And no one else was saved by God's deliverance of him. But when Jesus came forth from the tomb, he came out as the head of a mighty company of people who have been redeemed from the pit through his death. Because of the work of Christ on behalf of his people, the divine judge says, not guilty. You may go free. Man, if God is for us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us, church? Who you belong to shapes who you are. The best way to never forget that. Spend time in that prayer closet. 
because God is with us. He is our strength. He is our shield. We don't have to be afraid of anyone who can destroy the body when he preserves the soul. And he is always with us in the midst of whatever lion's den we find ourselves in. God is with us in the midst of a cancer diagnosis. God is with us when a loved one passes away. He is with us when when we feel betrayed. He's with us when we don't have the strength to move forward or we don't think we do. He's with us in every struggle, in every frustration, in every failure, promising, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And he whispers into our ear, greater is he that is in you. Greater is the spirit that is in you than the spirit that is in the world. We should thank God for examples like Daniel. And, And we should certainly follow those examples. But hear me, church, we follow the example of Daniel. We worship Jesus. And those are two different things. Because who you belong to truly does shape who you are. Who do you belong to this morning? I hope, I hope that you can say, I belong to the Lord. If you can't, we're going to give you an opportunity to come forward right now. I'm going to ask our prayer partners who are here this morning to come forward. And if you have not given your life to the Lord, you're not ready for the lion's den. And so we would love for you to come forward and give your life to him. If you're here and and you are in the midst of it right now and you just need prayer, you've spent time in the prayer closet, but you need a brother, you need a sister to come alongside you, to pray alongside you, to help you get through that, we are here for you. And we want to come alongside you to help you as you continue to maintain your integrity even in the midst of those difficult times. So if you need to come forward for any reason, you can do that right after I pray. And so, Father, we thank you for the story of of Daniel, all the stories that we've seen, of his friends as well, but especially today, this this handwriting on the wall, this, this lion's den experience for him. It just reminds us so much that we have to put our trust in you, our faith in you, and that we need to make sure that that we leave the past behind and we move forward into the future you have for us so that we might be able to to have the courage to face whatever whatever comes our way. We thank you so much for Daniel's example, but Father, we worship you. You are the God who is with us. You are the God who who does not forsake us. You are the God who saved Daniel. What he did was amazing. We want to to emulate that, but in the end, we, we give you the praise, not Daniel. We give you the glory because of what you've done and what you will continue to do. Help us to never forget that we belong to you. For those that are in here, Lord, that that don't yet, Would you allow your spirit to just encourage them to come forward and to give their life to you today? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.